0: Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. They say there are two things one should never speak of in polite company, religion and politics. Well, in this episode of Catholic History Trek, Kevin and I aren't merely sidestepping that rule, we're giving it a full-on body slam. As G.K. Chesterton once said, I never discuss anything except religion and politics. There's nothing else to discuss. I think Chesterton has a good point, and to that end, I'd like to introduce this episode by jumping right in to the contentious religious and political issue of withholding the Eucharist from pro-abortion, pro-Catholic politicians. Per the 1983 Code of Canon Law, in Canon 915, it says, Those obstinately persevering in manifest grave sins are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. And then in Canon 9.16, it follows up with, A person who is conscious of grave sin is not to receive the body of the Lord without previous sacramental confession. This issue came to a head when Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who is Prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, provided the Vatican's position on these two canons in a letter sent to Cardinal McCarrick in July of 2004. In this letter... Titled Worthiness to Receive Holy Communion General Principles. It was sent in response to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops' request for Vatican input regarding the then upcoming 2004 November presidential election. In that election were George Bush and a pro abortion Catholic, John Kerry. Summarizing some key aspects of the letter that Benedict sent, he stated, Not all moral positions have the same weight, placing abortion and euthanasia as grave sins. Also, presenting oneself to receive Holy Communion, one should consider, are they guilty of grave sin? And when a Catholic politician's formal cooperation becomes manifest via consistently campaigning and voting for abortion and euthanasia laws, his pastor should meet with him? instruct him regarding the church's teaching and inform him that he is not to present himself for Holy Communion until he brings the objective situation of sin to end. Ratzinger also stated that if the politician obstinately persists to present himself to receive the Holy Eucharist, the minister must refuse to distribute it. He also stated this wasn't a sanction or a penalty, but a reaction to the person's public unworthiness to receive the Eucharist. Anyway, I bring this bit of history up because now, nearly two decades later, we see it repeating itself to a degree. In the United States, as claimant to the office of the presidency, Joe Biden is the most prominent Catholic politician in the country and is also a very strong supporter of abortion laws. When Biden was denied communion at St. Anthony Church in Florence, South Carolina this past fall, it helped place a spotlight on this issue of whether the Holy Eucharist should be withheld from those who publicly promote positions of grave evil. On one side of the fence, you have those such as newly minted Cardinal Wilton Gregory of Washington, DC, who has claimed that he will not deny Biden communion because he feels that it would impede dialogue and advocates of this position feel it politicizes the Eucharist. But on the other side of the fence, you have stalwarts like Cardinal Raymond Burke, Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia, Archbishop Joseph Nauman of Kansas City, Bishop Thomas Tobin of Rhode Island, Bishop Samuel Aquila of Denver and others who have sided with the position that then Cardinal Ratzinger detailed in his letter to the bishops that the Eucharist should be denied to anyone who is publicly engraved sin. The reason I bring this up is Kevin and I are not planning to solve this issue in this episode. We do not plan to resolve whether bishops should be withholding the Eucharist from Catholic politicians who promote grave evil. But I did want to bring it up to introduce our episode, because in this episode, we will be looking at several historical cases where world leaders committed grave acts of sin and treachery. And they were canonically rebuked by popes and bishops of the Catholic Church. The first of these that I'd like to bring up is Saint Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan and Theodosius, the Emperor of Rome. This took place in the later half of the fourth century when Flavius Theodosius was the Roman Emperor. He was born only a couple decades after Constantine the Great, who had the famous Edict of Milan and the Edict of Toleration. So this is the era when Christianity was first becoming recognized and starting to spread throughout the Roman Empire without the intense persecutions it had seen you know, just a lifetime earlier. Theodosius was a baptized Catholic. Not only that, he worked to stamp out paganism as well as purging the Arian heresy from the empire. All that was good, <laughs> but in the year 390, something happened that was not so good. In the city of Thessalonica, which is in present-day Greece, there was a Roman garrison housed in this city that was comprised mostly of Goths, and they were commanded by a man named Botharic. Bothharic, by all descriptions, seems to have been a very upright and disciplined man, and as such, he had a popular charioteer jailed for debauchery. In response to the arrest of this very famous, very popular charioteer, a riot broke out, and this commander, Botharic, was lynched by a mob of Thessalonica's citizens. The Emperor Theodosius was not too pleased about this and was very outraged of what had happened he was so mad he sent orders for the roman army to round up the entire town and place them in the stadium to be slaughtered the next day after issuing this order when his temper had cooled theodosius regretted his decision and sent another messenger to thessalonica this time telling him telling them to stop the massacre unfortunately the second message was too late and 7,000 citizens of the city were killed upon this first order of the emperor. Theodosius reportedly was mortified at the situation, so he went to Milan to seek solace from the bishop Ambrose. Ambrose, on the other hand, who had learned of the situation, left the city before Theodosius arrived, and then at the risk of his own life, or at the risk of retribution from the emperor, who, if you remember just a moment ago, apparently had something of a fiery temper and was not, not beyond, you know, calling to, for the deaths of thousands of people. Ambrose, anyway, wrote a private letter to the emperor. This is, if you look at Elizabeth's letters, it would be letter 51, which you can find in the Catholic Encyclopedia. In this letter, he called for public repentance of the emperor and refused him to the holy sacrifice of the mass until such public repentance had occurred. Reading this letter ambrose commends their friendship he also commends the emperor's zeal for the faith he explains why he did not meet the emperor when the emperor came to milan to see him he provides details of king david and other patriarchs who had repented for their sins by way of sacrifice and then he asked the emperor to basically do the same thing to put away his sins through penitence which would be a sacrifice and then since the lord only forgives those who repent that is what he wanted the emperor to do And he also stated he would not offer the sacrifice of the mass if the emperor was present. So essentially, he was withholding the Eucharist and calling the emperor to public repentance. And this is where Theodosius basically earns his name, which means given by God. And he sets himself apart from some of these other secular rulers, which Kevin and I will be discussing in this episode. Theodosius went to the cathedral Milan and brought his whole entourage. Ambrose agreed to meet him there. And the emperor walked into the door of the cathedral, shed his royal robes, shed his insignia, and bowed down in public penance. One year later in 391, he personally went to Thessalonica and asked for forgiveness of the citizens. And Theodosius, who died in 395, provided an example that even as the most powerful man in the world, the the emperor of the Roman Empire... He recognized that ultimately he was subject to God and therefore submitted himself to God's servant, the Bishop Ambrose. So that is one example where things seem to have turned out pretty well, where the church asked for penance, asked for the offender to amend their ways. They did. And I will now turn it over to Kevin, who will be speaking about some folks named Henry, who may have had slightly different results.
1: Well, that's right, Scott. Uh, parallel in some ways, different in other ways, our next episode, which takes us not far from where you were with the Ambrose and Theodosius story, still in northern Italy. This, the Castle of Canossa, and our principal protagonist, Pope Gregory the Seventh, and King Henry IV of Germany. Canossa Castle is now just a ruins on a hill in north-central Italy, but at the time, we're talking about the 11th century, it was the stronghold of Matilda of Tuscany who ruled the region. And Pope Gregory VII, the pope at the time, whose name was Hildebrand, was one of the most consequential popes in history. He enacted a series of reforms which were in part intended to restore to the church its independence and supremacy in spiritual matters, against the encroachment of increasingly powerful European monarchs. So the story you just related, Scott, this conflict between Ambrose and Theodosius, you might see as the beginning of the rise of the church as a political power or as an authority in Europe. As the Roman Empire is waning, the power of the church is waxing. Now, in the Middle Ages, the power of the church is at its apex, and for a long time, secular rulers have bowed to the authority of the church. Well, it's starting to be challenged here in the 11th century. And so there's this contest of wills, in this case, between two strong-willed people, Gregory the Seventh and Henry the Fourth. Now, the specific matter at issue in this case was that kings had claimed for themselves the right to invest, which means to confer the office and therefore symbolically the power, or the authority of bishops. There was a reason for this, and that's because many bishops in the Middle Ages held not only spiritual authority, which is what we're used to in the 21st century, but they also had temporal authority, which is to say they ruled over certain areas, regions, cities. And so there was some rationale for kings claiming the right to invest bishops with this authority. Pope Gregory said, no, this is not consistent with the theology of the Church. Instead, a bishop is a Church official, and he receives his authority from God through the Church. So this conflict between bishops and kings, between popes and kings, became known as the investiture controversy. It lasted for uh, more than a century, and it involved a lot of related issues, But this particular episode at Canossa was kind of where the matter came to a head. So King Henry IV of Germany, who was trying to hold together the Holy Roman Empire, refused to concede this point to Gregory. He refused to concede that the king did not have the power to invest bishops. And so in February of 1076, Pope Gregory VII excommunicated the king of Germany. Now, this generated problems for Henry because it gave the various princes of the Holy Roman Empire even more justification for withholding their allegiance from Henry as he was trying to hold the empire together. So, with this pressure, Henry decided reconciliation is necessary. And so, in the deep of winter in 1077, he traipsed through the snow to the castle of Canossa. That's where Gregory was sheltering. He stood for three days outside the castle begging the pope's forgiveness. Finally, Gregory relented. He welcomed him and lifted the excommunication. That was in January of 1077. Sounds like a happily-ever-after ending, but unfortunately it wasn't. It wasn't the end of the conflict between the king and the pope. They continued to quarrel. There was another excommunication. Henry was actually crowned as emperor emperor of the Holy Roman Empire by an anti-pope in Rome in 1084 eventually there would be a compromise between the pope and the emperor but it wouldn't happen until henry and gregory were both off the stage it would be done by their successors it would take place at the concord in the concordat of worms in 1122 that's spelled like worms in english and that compromise or that clarification said that there was a distinction between the secular and the spiritual authority of the bishop and so the king or the secular authority could invest the bishop with his secular temporal power but the church would invest the bishop with his spiritual authority this episode also by the way gave uh, to the English language and idiomatic expression. You don't hear it very often, but I come across it occasionally, going to canosa. It means abasing oneself or asking for forgiveness for someone. Uh, when you've done something wrong, you go to Kenosa. About a hundred years after Kenosa, another King Henry was involved in another conflict with the church. This is one Scott and I have talked about from a slightly different perspective in an earlier podcast, the Camino and Canterbury podcast on pilgrimage sites. This one involves the conflict between Archbishop Thomas Beckett, St. Thomas Becket, and King Henry II of England. Beckett had served as Henry's chancellor, that's the highest office in the realm, next to the king. He was his good friend, but then Becket became Archbishop in 1162, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the primary see in England, and almost from the beginning, he was in conflict with the King of England. The primary source of that conflict, the Constitutions of Clarendon. This was a set of legislative reforms that Henry was pushing. He proposed them in 1164. It involved a lot of complicated matters, but the main point of contention was whether clergy would be subject to civil royal courts or to ecclesiastical courts. The tradition in England was that the clergy were not subject to trial or to penalties imposed by secular courts, but instead they would be tried by church courts. And this helped to preserve the independence of the church over and against the secular authority. Now, Henry ostensibly wanted more severe punishment for genuinely criminal clerics. So that was a a genuine issue at the time, was crimes committed by clerics and their punishment. But Thomas Beckett, who knew Henry very well, had known him for years, perceived a more sinister motive. He thought Henry was trying to chip away at the power of the church in the cause of increasing the power of the state. Well, it wouldn't be the first or the last time that a monarch attempted to do that. Pope Alexander III took Becket's side. Beckett refused to give in. Henry forced the issue. Beckett was compelled to flee England. He spent six years in exile, returned in 1170 after he reached an agreement with Henry. It appeared that the two could come to a compromise. But less than a month after arriving in England, Thomas Beckett and Henry II were again at loggerheads over related matters, in particular the excommunication of bishops who had supported Henry's position. Now at some point while this feud was going on, Henry is alleged to have said, we don't know exactly what he said or if he said it, but his knights got the message anyway. The question, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? And four of his knights interpreted this as a request to get rid of the Archbishop of Canterbury, they went to the cathedral on December 29th of 1170. They killed Thomas Becket in his cathedral. He immediately became a hero to the Catholic people of England. He was canonized by the Pope in three years after his death. He was buried beneath Canterbury Cathedral. It became a popular pilgrimage site. That's what we talked about in the previous podcast. Henry, for his part, well, the people of England blamed him for the death of their archbishop. And he came to a point where he was compelled to do public penance at the tomb of Thomas Becket. So somewhat like the situation with Ambrose, it appeared that the church had the upper hand in this controversy in the end, even though Thomas Becket lost his life in the course of it. The next conflict we're going to be highlighting between church and state, between pope and monarch, keeps us in England. Scott's going to cover this one.
0: Yes, the next controversy is between Pope Pius V and Elizabeth, the Queen of England. So to give a little background, these are two very different, very different people. So Pius V was a 16th century pope who reigned for about six years from 1566 to 1572. He was born to a poor family in northern Italy. He entered the Dominicans. He became a, he was ordained a priest. He taught theology, philosophy. He eventually became a master of the novices. He was prior of several houses. And in that role, he was always striving to develop monastic virtues. Basically, you know, very holy disciple, personal fasting, penance, long meditation, prayer, uh, you know, everything you kind of picture when you kind of picture the ideal Dominican, the ideal religious. This is what he was pursuing. Uh, He zealously served the church as an inquisitor, and ultimately named the inquisitor general for all of Christendom. In 1566, he was elected pope, took the name Pope Pius V, but as pope, he was very different from his predecessors because those descriptions I mentioned about him when he became a Dominican, he retained those. He retained his ascetic way of life, practicing the virtues he had lived as a monk and a bishop, frequently made visits to the Blessed Sacrament, gave alms to the poor, Visited hospitals, was known to wash the feet of the poor, embrace lepers, and as the pontiff, he sought many reforms for the betterment or the sanctity of the church. He updated the Roman Missal through the Apostolic Constitution Quo Primum. He confirmed the Usus Antiquior of the liturgy for the Council of Trent, which was but was uh, what we know today as the Tridentine Mass, which is the mass that was essentially unchanged from his time until the changes Paul VI incorporated in the 20th century with the Novus Ordo Mise. Uh, The Council of Trent's Catechism was also published as under during Pius V. He implemented the reforms of the Council of Trent. He strongly opposed nepotism and simony. He banished luxury from the papal court, reformed indulgences, uh, supported missions in the New World, worked with his friend Charles Borromeo to reform the clergy, Asked priests live celibate, chaste, holy lives, which wasn't very common back then, and also obliged the bishops to reside in their diocese and visit their, visit their parishes. And as Kevin mentioned previously, with the issue with lay investiture, these bishops weren't always focused on, you know, the sanctity, you know, saving souls. They had um, property estates. There were other things they were focused on, and Pius V wanted to make sure that bishops and priests were doing what we today picture bishops and priests should be doing. He also urged cardinals to live lives of simplicity. He suppressed a religious order in Milan that tried to kill Charles Borromeo because of these changes that they did not like. Uh, He also ordered religious to live according to the vows that they took. And not only that, I mean, this is all church stuff. He also, now that he was the head of Rome, uh, you know, the, this area, you know, the pope was also a secular ruler. He and he brought about a lot of changes in the Roman laws. He introduced harsh penalties for Sunday desecration and profanity, very harsh penalties, sometimes as bad as like life imprisonment for adultery, uh, banished prostitutes from much of the city. He forbid horse racing in St. Peter's Square, which I'm kind of surprised they had that anyway, but forbid it. Uh, He condemned bullfighting and similar activities as cruel and baseless spectacles of the devil and not of man. He's also the pope who we know of from the Battle of Lepanto, and I think that deserves its own podcast like we did for the Battle of Vienna. So I won't say too much about that other than in that battle, he asked for prayer. As you hopefully gather from this, he was a very pious man, very focused on prayer. He sought prayers from the whole church to overcome the – incursions of the ottoman turks which led to the victory of the christians not to uh, i guess give away the ending of a future podcast hopefully uh, which led to the feast of our lady of victory and one other thing he sought to do was prevent the spread of protestant heirs which were promoting heresy and tearing apart christendom so that is Pius v on the other side of the channel in England you had Elizabeth I who was the queen of England and if you recall this would have been shortly after Henry VIII in the 1530s who broke from Rome and formed the church of England and after Henry VIII died his son Edward VI only reigned for about 6 years during that time the archbishop Thomas Cranmer had changed the liturgy and then after he died the english did not want the next in line who would have been a catholic named mary tudor taking over so Lady Jane Grey became the new queen, but she only lasted about nine days. Mary I, also known as Mary Tudor, she took over from 1553 to 1558. She was the only surviving child of Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon. And while she was queen, she restored Catholicism to England, but unfortunately she died without a legitimate successor because of that. The daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, who was Elizabeth I, took over, and she reigned for nearly 50 years. Under the reign of Elizabeth I, the attacks on Catholicism were renewed. The mass and the sacraments were outlawed. Uh, Aired attendance was for the Anglican services. They imposed fines and imprisonment if you did not attend the Anglican services, and you had what was called the Recucent Movement, which should probably be another podcast, but notables such as William Shakespeare's family and many others were part of this, where they were basically underground Catholics in a persecuted church. She established the Anglican Church as the National Church of England. And in the 1560s, a rebellion against Elizabeth was started in the northern part of England to place another Catholic Mary as the Queen. This one was Mary, Queen of Scots, and so this rebellion was essentially led by a couple Catholic earls, Thomas Percy and Charles Neville, and what they sought to do was overthrow Elizabeth I, replace them with Mary, Queen of Scots, so they could return Catholicism. Unfortunately, it was not very successful. The open rebellion began in 1569, and by February of 1570, it was defeated. So five days after the, the rebellion was crushed, Pope Pius V issued a papal bull, Regnans in Excelsis in support of the rebellion, even though it was already over the, he had written it, he thought, prayed on it. So you can, these are kind of happened in parallel and this is before the days so of obviously email and internet and everything. So by the time he finally got this published, the rebellion was already dead. But in this papal bull, Pius V essentially said, Elizabeth was a heretic. And she was a favor of heretics. She incurred the sentence of excommunication. She was to be deprived of all of her pretended title as Queen of England. All her subjects were free of any fealty oath that they had made to her. And anyone who followed her joined in her excommunication from the Catholic Church. In response to this, Elizabeth's actions were not exactly repentant. She responded with a renewed vigor in tortures and executions of faithful Catholics, which led to the growth of the recusant movement and which remained alive for many years during her reign of terror, which did produce many martyrs. Anyway, it was a very difficult time for Catholics. And unfortunately, unlike the first person I mentioned, Theodosius I, who did repent and fully return, This was a totally different situation where she responded essentially with a renewed vigor to wipe out catholicism from her kingdom
1: well scott i just have to clarify one thing off the bat because i don't want to start any um, unfounded rumors from someone who misunderstands as words tend to run together sometimes when we're when we're in the in the heat of uh, recording these podcasts yes, and you talked about the rebellion started by Catholic earls, which would be noblemen in England, and it could have been heard as Catholic girls so oh. <laughs> it was <laughs> It was in fact not Catholic school girl, schoolgirls who started the rebellion in the north, but uh, but a couple of Catholic aristocrats. So is yes. that clarified? And well, that
0: would make the names Thomas Percy and Charles Neville make more sense as boys exactly. and not girls.
1: Exactly. So well, like Thomas Beckett, we're kind of crossing back and forth the English Channel. We're returning to France for our final episode in this uh tour de force through the history of church-state conflict, talking about now the late 18th, early 19th century, and the famous French Emperor Napoleon. Well, Napoleon liked to do everything big, and this is no exception, because he quarreled not with one, but with two successive popes, Pius VI and Pius VII. The problem started with the French Revolution, 1789. Shortly after it began, it took a radical and anti-Christian turn. The uh, forces of the Revolution passed the Civil Constitution of the Clergy in 1790, and without going into the details, it essentially declared the independence of the French Church from Rome. This is obviously something that could not be countenanced by Catholicism, the universal Roman Catholic Church, and so Pope Pius VI, the Pope at the time, condemned the Civil Constitution, condemned the French Revolution. In 1796, a few years later, French troops under the command of Napoleon Bonaparte. He was not yet the ruler of France. Uh, This force invaded Italy and seized the Papal States. Pius refused to concede, refused to abdicate his position as head of the Papal States, and so he was taken prisoner by the French, removed from Italy to France. He died there, died in exile in France in 1799. His successor, Pius VII, was elected shortly thereafter. He took the same line that Pius VI had. By that time, Napoleon was in control of the French Empire, and he recognized the prudence of coming to peace with the Church. The majority of the French people were still Catholic of one variety or another. Catholicism was still the dominant religion in Europe, And the Pope still had the respect of many secular rulers and still had some secular power himself. And so Napoleon thought it was wise to reach some kind of agreement with the Pope and with the Catholic Church. So the Vatican and the nation of France signed the Concordat of 1801, which was a compromise. The Church conceded some ground to the French state, but it also restored essential functions to the catholic church in france and and preserved inviolate the the most important of the prerogatives of the church napoleon however as dictators are wont to do started violating the provisions of the concordat almost immediately and so the tension with the church and with the pope specifically continued to increase in 1809 france again invaded italy again seized the papal states pope pius VII excommunicated napoleon And so, Napoleon's forces once again seized the Pope. They brought him into exile in France, that's where he remained until Napoleon's defeat. Napoleon's fortunes started to go down after his disastrous invasion of Russia in 1812. He went into his first exile in 1814. And so at that point, Pius VII, still alive, returned from France to Rome triumphantly, His stature was only increased by this conflict with Napoleon because uh, the rest of Europe didn't think much of Napoleon. He was trying, basically, to take over the world. And so the fact that the Pope stood up to him uh, was a mark in his favor. And this really marks the beginning of a rise in uh, respect for and the stature of the papacy in the modern period. Pope Pius VII died in Rome in peace in 1823. He actually outlived Napoleon by two years. Napoleon died in exile on the island of St. Helena. He did reconcile with the Catholic Church shortly before his death. So these just a few of the many many episodes in the history of conflict between church and state as Scott so skillfully laid out in the opening, this has very contemporary relevance. The issue of abortion specifically May be new to our contemporary world, but uh, the overarching problem of conflict between church and state, often enough of secular rulers um, trying to aggrandize to themselves powers or authority that is due to the church, or in some other way defying the authority or the teaching of the church, lays at the root of many of these controversies. So let us, as we end in prayer this episode, let us keep in prayer both our secular rulers and the leaders of our church, that they may always follow the principles of justice and prudence. Gloria patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto.
0: Sicuturat in principio et nunc semper et in saecula saeculorum. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at Catholic History Trek at gmail.com.